there. This is the Motherhood Elevated Podcast. I'm your host, Annette Jones, and this is episode number 12, The Science Behind Humility. You are listening to the Motherhood Elevated Podcast for women who want to find clarity of mind, create lasting emotional well-being and confidence, and achieve amazing potential. Come with me. This will be fun. Hey everyone, welcome back. I've had a couple of pretty busy weeks with a little trip out of town as well as company in town and we're still kind of in the middle of it with my sister and her family headed our way this weekend which we're really excited about. My kids don't have cousins that live close by so it's always a big treat when they get to hang out. So lots going on but lots of good things. So let's get right into it. I've been thinking about doing a series of episodes for a little while now and they're kind of based on a Relief Society presentation I did a few years back about developing the attributes of the Savior. And I'll go into more detail later in the episode, but just in case you're a new listener, I am a certified life coach as well as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if you listen to any of my other episodes, you know that I like to incorporate my spiritual beliefs into my coaching because that's how it's been um, really powerful for me and for many of the women that I coach. It's been really eye-opening as well to apply the tools that I teach as a coach with the perspective that they have as members of the church. So that's what I want to talk about today, and you'll see what I mean as we get into it, okay? So a few years ago, the church put out a video that I love. It's called We Lived With God, and you can find it either on the church's website or I'm sure it's on YouTube. And it features a very renowned scientist, Dr. John Lewis, who is a retired professor of planetary sciences. He worked at MIT and then at the University of Arizona. And he is a chemist who very extensively studied the chemistry of the universe. And in this video, he talks about the seemingly conflicting scientific versus religious theories about how the universe came to be, how it was created. But he explains that science and religion actually complement one another, that they actually work together as evidence to support each other. So referring to these scientific and religious theories of the creation of the universe, he says, It's all one big whole. It's one consistent story. Science and religion represent two independent witnesses of creation. And we're told through the Old Testament that two or more independent witnesses are required to certify the truth. They are not opposites, but they are like the vision seen from your two eyes. If you close one eye and then close the other and alternate back and forth, you don't see the same thing with those two eyes. But it is the combination of those two views which gives you three-dimensional perception and shows you things that neither eye by itself sees. So I believe this same concept applies not only to the science of the universe and the creation, but to the science of the mind and what we're learning about the brain and how it works and how it's wired and how it thrives. And to me, the principles behind psychological health and emotional wellness go hand in hand with the teachings of the Savior and his gospel. And for me, the application of the tools that I've learned has really helped me to better understand, first of all, my identity as a daughter of God. It's changed my relationship with him and how I view him and the people around me. And it's changed the way I see myself and my own potential. 
My testimony's been strengthened, my own vision and purpose for my life has become more clear. And although I know I'm still learning and I still have a lot of room for growth, I can see that slowly my thoughts and attentions are becoming more focused and more deliberate and more Christ-like. And I know so many women who are having the same experience. So I've seen in myself increased patience and love and compassion and faith and confidence in God and in myself. And I can also see how I'm becoming less judgmental, less critical, less concerned about other people's opinions and judgments of me. And I've heard my whole life that I am supposed to follow the Savior and become like Him. And I really have tried to do that, but I really felt that I was falling short in so many ways. And I think until a couple of years ago, even though I've been a member of the church my entire life, I actually had a pretty limited or kind of vague idea of what it all even meant and what it was all about. But as I've come to, as I've been able to delve into the the science-y, I know that's not a word, but the science side of things and incorporate that aspect into my spiritual beliefs, I've come to see that the reason we're given commandments to do as the Savior did, to forgive or to be humble, or to have patience is because we are wired as humans so that doing these things will bring us peace, that they will contribute to our happiness, that they will bring us closer to our Heavenly Father and help us become like Him. Because we're His children, right? We literally have His spiritual DNA within us. And these attributes that make Him God, these characteristics that make Him divine, as His children, those same attributes are already within us too. They're just not yet fully developed. Some of them are still in embryo inside of us. So a tiny acorn, when it's formed, has all of the DNA it ever needs to become a giant oak tree, right? But it takes water and sunlight and nutrients and time to grow and change and develop and to eventually reach its potential. Well, we're the same way. We already have all of the divine attributes we need to become like God within us. They just need to be uncovered and nourished and given the opportunity to develop. So as the creator of our physical bodies, it makes sense that God would wire us so that developing these divine attributes would be the way to help us feel happiness and peace and joy, right? He knows what our spirits are striving for, what they're designed to be, and I believe he created our physical minds to thrive when those spiritual attributes are being nourished. So Joseph Smith taught that if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. And I believe that this is true. The more we really come to know God and his character and what he's like and what brings him happiness and joy, the better we can know and understand ourselves and what will ultimately bring us happiness and joy. So many people in this world are searching for identity, for purpose, for connection, and for validation. In fact, I think we're all kind of searching for those things, right? It's like there's this void, this emptiness that we're trying to fill, and we think that things from the world will fill it. But really, it's in discovering and nurturing our own divinity and our relationship with our Heavenly Father that will ultimately fill that void and complete us. So for me... Integrating the concepts of mental and emotional well-being from a psychological perspective with the principles we're taught about happiness and peace from a gospel perspective has really taken my understanding of God and his character to a whole new level. And incorporating the science of the mind has helped me to see how I can put those gospel principles into action that have sometimes seemed a little vague or confusing to me. 
Okay, so that was kind of a long explanation, but if you can't tell, this is a pretty powerful concept for me. And so for the next few podcasts, I thought it would be cool to take a look at some of the attributes of Jesus Christ and to see what science has learned through studies and research about the effect and benefits for us of developing his characteristics. So the first attribute I want to talk about this week is humility. And I think humility is really foundational to all of the other attributes of the Savior. And we hear this word a lot in the church, and we're told that we should be humble. But why? Why is this such an important trait? Well, for me, the best way to understand why humility is important is to look at the opposite of humility, which is pride, which we also hear a lot about in the church. And if we take a look at what pride creates in our lives, we can see why we're encouraged to cultivate humility. So Elder Dieter Uchtdorf gave a wonderful talk on pride, and he says that pride is a feeling that breeds hatred or hostility and places us in opposition to God or our fellow men. He uses words like self-elevation, superiority, self-glorification, and he kind of sums up pride by saying, at its core, pride is a sin of comparison. And President Benson, in his famous talk about pride, says pride is essentially competitive in nature. And he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, who said, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So there's that theme through those quotes of comparison, competition. And I think this is so interesting. Think of how often we compare ourselves to others. We do this all of the time, right? Did you know that comparing yourself to other people is an actual reflex of your brain? It's called the competitive reflex, and it's defined as the pre-conscious visceral, which visceral means conditioned or instinctive. So the pre-conscious instinctive impulse to oppose or outdo others or to auto-react against perceived threats to one's established sense of self. So our brains have this tendency to want to constantly evaluate our worth or our capabilities based on how we're doing in comparison to the people around us. And our brains have these questions like, am I enough? Am I doing okay? Do I have worth and value? And when our brains ask these questions, it's looking for answers to those questions, right? And it thinks that the best way to gauge our success or value is to base it on how we measure up to someone else. So what does this do for us? Well, on one hand, if we're comparing ourselves to someone we think we're better than, it can lead to feelings of arrogance, of self-elevation, feelings of maybe complacency or indifference, or it can cause us to feel that we are more important or more favored than another person. And on the flip side, if we compare and find ourselves lacking, which probably a lot of us tend to do, it can cause us to feel despair, to feel hopelessness, Um, to feel envy or hostility, or it can cause feelings of worthlessness or, or shame. So either way you look at it, this competitive reflex doesn't do a lot to help us, but it can cause some pretty big problems for us and lead to emotions that aren't very positive or productive. So what do we do about this? Well, it's important to be aware of this reflex, and Dr. Carl Albrecht, in an article entitled The Paradoxical Power of Humility, suggests that the answer to overcoming the competitive reflex is found in developing humility. He says that humility is an experience of growth in which you no longer need to put yourself above others, but you don't put yourself below them either. Everyone is your peer, from the most important person to the least. 
You are just as valuable as every other human being on the planet, no more and no less. It's about behaving and reacting from purposes, not emotions. You learn to simply disconnect or deprogram that competitive reflex in situations where it's not productive. So the first step is to recognize this reflex and just be aware of when it comes up for you. Be mindful of it and identify the emotion it's creating for you. And then the second step is to choose a different response. And with all that we've talked about with agency and thought management and the model, we know that we do have a choice about how we'll respond. We don't have to react with the first thought or feeling that comes up for us, right? And so if we're in a situation where maybe someone is being recognized for something that they've accomplished, do we get a little jealous or maybe defensive? Um, and think about how we deserve that recognition or that we could have done it better? Or do we go the other way and get down on ourselves and fall into self-criticism or self-loathing and tell ourselves that we should be better or more, more like that person? Or can we genuinely be happy for someone when something good happens and support him or her in that moment of recognition and accomplishment? There is kind of a well-known quote from Elder Holland about this topic, and he said, Obviously we suffer when some misfortune befalls us, but envy requires us to suffer all good fortune that befalls everyone we know. What a bright prospect that is, downing another quart of pickle juice every time anyone around you has a happy moment. He goes on to say, Coveting, pouting, or tearing others down does not elevate your standing, nor does demeaning someone else improve your self-image. So be kind and be grateful that God is kind. It's a happy way to live. I love that. So developing humility is the key to keep yourself from falling into that comparison trap. And going back to Dr. Albrecht's article, he says, Humility is less a matter of self-restraint and more a matter of self-esteem. The greater your sense of self-worth, the easier it is to appreciate others, to praise them, and to encourage them. And I believe this is true. If you think about it, the Savior didn't spend his life worrying about how he measured up to other people, and he didn't elevate himself above others either. He was perfectly humble, completely free from this restrictive tendency, because he knew who he was. He understood his mission. He knew the answers to those questions of, am I enough, and do I have worth and value? And he got those answers the same way that we can, by spending time drawing close to his Heavenly Father, Um, by seeking knowledge about who he was through the Spirit. He understood who he was because he understood who his father was. And he didn't need validation or permission from the world to go out and fulfill his divine purpose because of his, his humility. So this leads me into the second trap we fall into of worrying too much about what other people think. And again, this can be a symptom of pride, but I think this is one that's even more sneaky than the comparison reflex because it sounds so pretty. We just want people to approve of us. We just want people to like us. We just want to be thought highly of and to get that validation again that we're okay, that we're valuable. And I love compliments and kind words just as much as anyone. They are validating. They can give us a little boost, but there's a big difference between accepting and enjoying praise and and needing it to feel good about ourselves. And I think this is one of the aspects of the Savior's humility that I love the most and that has made the biggest difference for me as I've tried to understand this attribute. Because of his humility, because of how he esteemed himself and others around him, the Savior was able to perfectly fulfill his divinely appointed earthly mission. 
he could handle the criticism and the invalidation and the accusations and the oppositions against him because he saw himself as a son of God and he understood what that meant. And this knowledge allowed him to thrive and to stay committed to his work in the face of all the negativity directed at him. So what do we learn from this? Well, the takeaway for me is that, you know what? It's okay for me not to have approval or validation all the time. It's okay if I'm criticized or misunderstood. That says nothing about my worth or my ability to contribute to the world. And it's okay to face opposition. In fact, when I'm creating goodness or taking a stand for something I believe is right, that opposition is almost a guarantee, isn't it? But does that mean I shouldn't do it? Does that mean I should stop trying or give up? No, the Savior's example of humility teaches me that I don't have to become discouraged and that I don't have to let these things get me down, that I can continue forward with confidence, that I can be my best and do my best and create that validation and approval for myself by deciding what I want to think of me and how I want to show up. So pride tells us that we need that praise and that recognition to feel good and to do good and that these things need to come from outside of us. But humility allows us to see ourselves in proper perspective as capable and valuable and loved. It allows us to recognize and use our talents and strengths to bless others. Now, some people think that humility means staying small or withholding ourselves and our gifts and talents or focusing on our flaws and weaknesses and convincing ourselves that we're not good enough. But this is not humility. In fact, obsessing about ourselves in any way, negative or positive, is a form of pride. Let me say that again. Obsessing about ourselves in any way, negative or positive, is a form of pride. Interesting, right? So humility is actually thinking highly of ourselves. It's seeking or seeing ourselves as God sees us. When we value ourselves, we don't have to spend time or energy worrying about proving our value to others and getting their approval. We can just go out into the world and forget about ourselves and focus on lifting others. Elder Uchtdorf also said, we don't discover humility by thinking less of ourselves. We discover humility by thinking less about ourselves. And the best way I've found to think less about myself is to be my own best friend, to be really deliberate about the way I talk to myself and the way I think about myself. Your self-image is important because it affects how you feel, it affects how you treat other people, and how you show up in the world. So be kind to yourself. Make sure the things that you say to yourself are positive and uplifting. We hear all of the time that many of the things we say to ourselves we would never say to someone else. So watch yourself and be sure that you are gentle and compassionate with yourself, just like you would be for someone else. And when you give yourself the things that you think you want other people to give you, like love and validation or appreciation or approval, when you give yourself permission to think that you are valuable and capable and lovable and good, that is when you can quiet and calm that questioning brain and give it the answers to, am I enough? And do I have worth and value? Then you really do think about yourself less because you're not constantly needing evidence from outside sources to prove that you're enough. Okay, great stuff and life-changing if you can really, really understand it. So the third aspect of humility that I'd like to talk about is that humility makes us teachable. This attribute makes us great learners because no matter how much we know, there's always more to learn, right? Sometimes we think that our view of the world, our way of looking at or interpreting things is the only way, that our perspective is the right perspective. 
<clears throat> but we know that the same experience can mean two different things to do to, to two different people or even 10 different things to 10 different people based on their personalities and life experiences. We as humans tend to view ourselves as the center of the universe and not in a prideful way, but that's kind of how we were born and how we experience things. We all see things through our own individual lens from our own mind's eye. But we can choose to get outside of our own heads, to see things through different lenses from others' perspectives. And in doing so, there's so much we can learn. And I th think that part of being teachable is being willing to be wrong. I see this all of the time in coaching. Clients who have such solid, firm, ingrained beliefs that they just don't want to let go of, even though they're causing suffering or other issues in their lives. And one of my favorite questions to ask myself or a client is, what if I'm wrong about this? Or what's another way to see the situation? Or am I willing to believe that I could think differently about this? Imagine how your life would be different if you were willing to open up your mind and be wrong. Maybe your husband really does do enough to help around the house, even though you tell yourself he should do more. Maybe your kids aren't messing up their lives with the decisions they're making. Maybe your in-laws really do care about your feelings, even though you think you have evidence that they don't. Maybe something someone said at church really wasn't meant to offend you, or even if it was, maybe you don't have to be offended by it. I had an experience this summer with one of my kids, and I was just agonizing over some decisions that were being made. <clears throat> and I was really torn between letting this child have agency when the choices were not what I thought was right or what I wanted to have happen. Um, there was some major cognitive dissonance going on for me. I knew that I needed to let go and let this child exercise agency, but I also wanted so badly to just be in control so I could prevent the consequences that I so much wanted this child to avoid. And in talking about this with a fellow coach, I came to the realization that I needed some major humility. I thought I knew what should happen. I thought I knew what was right. <clears throat> I thought I knew better than everyone else. And it took a lot of humility to let go of that desire for control and to trust that things would eventually work out just as they were supposed to. And when I was finally able to get to a place of humility, I stopped being that crazy controlling mom and I was able to show up from a place of love, which helped my relationship with this child so much more than trying to control everything did. And this child ended up making some decisions that I wouldn't have wanted and that I didn't agree with. But, I, but um, this child also learned some really valuable lessons and grew in ways that I, even with my best efforts, couldn't have ever orchestrated. So sometimes we hold on so tightly to the things that we want to be right about and we can't let them go even though they cause us distress, even though they are damaging relationships. Um, but when we are willing to be wrong, about our current thoughts and beliefs, we can open ourselves up to the possibility of believing something entirely new, something much more positive, more productive, more empowering. And humility is the thing that can get you there. So one last quote that I want to leave you with <clears throat> is from an article by Dr. Michael Austin. And he says, recent studies show that humility is connected with many forms of pro-social behavior. The humble person keeps her accomplishments, gifts, and talents in a proper perspective. She has self-knowledge and is aware of her limitations as an individual and as a human being, but humble individuals are also oriented towards others. They value the welfare of people and have the ability to forget themselves as well when appropriate. He goes on to say, interestingly, the empirical research on humility 
<clears throat> shows that this trait has great value. Humility has been linked with better academic performance, job performance, and excellence in leadership. Humble people have better social relationships, avoid deception in their social interactions, and they tend to be forgiving, grateful, and cooperative. A recent set of studies also shows that humility is a consistent predictor of generosity. People who are humble tend to be more generous with their, both their time and their money. So I think it's so interesting to know that the attribute of humility, one of the characteristics of the Savior that we're encouraged to emulate and cultivate in our own selves, has such a positive effect in the world from even a non-religious perspective. It benefits us not only as individuals, but society as a whole. And science has the evidence to prove it. Cultivating these divine attributes is so much more than just going through the motions because we're supposed to or because we're trying to be obedient. They change us. They bring out the best in us. And when we really understand what they do for us, we can see that they help us to live in this world of opposition and challenges with genuine peace and authentic happiness, just as the Savior did. So I'll end with a thought by Brigham Young. I think I've shared this before, but it's one of my favorites. And he said, the principles of eternity and exaltation and eternal exaltation are of no use to us unless they are brought down to our capacities so that we practice them in our lives. And I love that I can draw on the principles that are backed by both science and by my spiritual and religious beliefs to give me direction and focus as I navigate this life. And I love that they complement one another. I believe that God is the ultimate scientist and that he uses these principles to govern himself and everything and everyone else within his stewardship. So thanks for letting me share this with you. I hope this made sense and at least maybe opened up your mind to a different way of thinking about humility. I'm going to choose a few other attributes to talk about in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. There are more episodes coming your way. I hope you have a fabulous week and I'll see you next time. Take care. If you like what you hear on this podcast and would like to learn more, I invite you to check out my website at motherhoodelevated.com. There you can sign up for a free mini session to see what working with me looks like, as well as find information on classes I offer or get on the list for some weekly inspiration straight to your inbox. Again, that's motherhoodelevated.com. Have a great week.